So how many of you turned to Matthew? Of course, I have it. I warned you last week. So we are going to start on this Palm Sunday by looking at John's Gospel. <clears throat> um, just a couple of introductory things. Number one, uh, remember that uh, John's Gospel is not one of the synoptic Gospels. Uh, it does not look like the other three. John had a different purpose, a different um, motivation, if you will, behind his book. Um, as the disciple that Jesus loved, he wrote his gospel in a way that emphasized not only the identity of Christ as the Jewish Messiah, but also showed his deity in a way that none of the other gospels shows it. So we're going to start up our message this morning in uh, chapter 12 with verses 12 through 19, which is John's retelling of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So if you would, stand with me this morning. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, as we commemorate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem this morning, let us not forget why he went to that great city. That it was not just so he could be recognized for who he was, but that it was also so that he could die in our place. Father, I pray this morning that we would honor him and glorify him in all that we say and do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So I thought that starting out this morning, this would be a good way to, uh, to, to celebrate Palm Sunday, if you will, um, because this is what Palm Sunday is, is commemorating, is the day that Jesus entered the city and the people were praising him. Um, the only problem with that is they were praising Jesus for what they expected him to do and not what he really did. They weren't praising him for who he was, rather they were praising him for who they thought he was at that time. Back in uh, Matthew, I believe it was in chapter 16, uh, where Jesus asked the disciples who people said that he was, the list of answers that the disciples gave, and it may have been an abbreviated list, did not include the king of Israel. That was not part of who they had identified Jesus as. 
Who do the people say that I am? They said he might be John the Baptist. He might be Elijah. They thought he might be the prophet, which is a title that's commonly used for Isaiah. But here, before the Passover, something had changed. Now, John tells us that the reason the crowd had come is because they had heard about the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. So the people had come because Jesus was doing stuff, as usual. Maybe the reason that the people hailed him as the king of Israel had something to do with the ministry that he was doing in and around Jerusalem as opposed to the ministry up in Galilee. Because if you remember, the majority of what we've been looking at in Matthew, all the way up through chapter 20, or chapter 19, chapter 20 is when they traveled down to Jerusalem, everything else has been up in Galilee for the most part. There was a little bit down in Jerusalem to start with, but then everything else was up in Galilee. And of course, what was the popular sentiment about Galilee and Nazareth and that area in Palestine? Nothing good can come out of, nothing good can come out of that area because it was a, it was not a Jewish area. It was a mixed area. There was a very broad distribution of populations there. So it may be that the people didn't think of Jesus as the king because why would the king be in Galilee? I will tell you that most certainly Jesus' mode of transportation entering the city caused them to think. Um, He was riding on a young donkey that had never been ridden before. That's unusual. That kind of sticks out especially since uh, the prophet Zechariah said that the king would come riding on the foal of a donkey. That's, that could be why they were hailing him as he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But I want you to notice here in verse 16, John tells us that the disciples didn't understand these things at first. It wasn't until after Jesus' ascension till after he was glorified, that the, that the disciples click, the light switch came on. Hey, I get it now. This is one of those things that, that last week I mentioned when James and John, uh, through their mother, petitioned Jesus to sit at his right hand and left hand. He said, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? the disciples probably didn't think about Jesus as anything but a man. You've heard the old adage, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck, right? Well, Jesus looked like a man. He ate. He slept. I know this is, this is probably something that none of you have ever thought about before. He probably used the bathroom, I would expect, because he was a man, right? And that even goes so far as to say, He was a man in the Middle East, which means he probably did not smell like a bed of roses either, right? His feet got dirty. His clothes got dirty. He had the natural uh, flora and fauna growing on his body. The disciples didn't think of Jesus as anything but a human being because that's what he looked like because that's what he was. You can't see the divine nature in somebody. That's not something that's visible. Now, every now and then, 
the divine nature peek through like on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? But then Jesus told Peter and James and John, don't tell anybody what you saw up here. So they probably put it out of their heads. So here, the disciples, probably throughout the Gospels, as they're walking along with Jesus, there are things that he does and things that he says and things that he teaches that they didn't understand until after the resurrection. Even before, even between the four Gospels that we have, we don't have a full and complete picture of everything that happened during the time of Jesus' ministry. There were probably days where they stayed in one place. There were probably days where they didn't do anything but sit around and listen to Jesus teach. There were probably days where they went fishing. I know that's really hard for us to believe that Jesus would go fishing. Why not? They were in Galilee. It's a, a fishing community, Nazareth, Capernaum, right? They, we know we, they spent a lot of time at the seashore. We know what Peter and Andrew, James and John did for a living, right? There were probably times that Jesus went fishing. There may have been times they went swimming in the Sea of Galilee. And there were probably times where the disciples were sitting there listening to Jesus, the Son of God, teach with half an ear. You ever done that? I will not ask how many are doing it right now. even the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, like this one, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. When, when Jesus tells the disciples, in the other three Gospels we get a little bit more full of an account, where he tells the disciples, go and find a donkey tied up with her colt and bring them here, right? The disciples are probably thinking, why is he having us commit the equivalent of Grand Theft Auto? Why are we going and taking a donkey from somebody? What is the purpose in this? They're probably not thinking about this prophecy because they're not from Jerusalem. They're Galileans for the most part. Matthew's a tax collector. John Mark is a teenager. Why would they think anything significant about Jesus riding in on a donkey? But now the people in Jerusalem, the people who are in the synagogues in Jerusalem, the people who go to the temple in Jerusalem, they see Jesus with all of the stuff that he's done, riding in on this young donkey, and all of a sudden that prophecy from Zechariah comes to the front. And so the people are waving palm leaves and crying out, Hosanna. Any of y'all got palm trees in your front yard? Those little sago palms don't count. They're not a real palm tree. And they're miserable little things too. Pointy little leaves on them. Over in the Middle East, in, in all of the, the cultures, even in European cultures, Greek cultures, 
the Egyptian culture, the palm branch had a special significance. It was a sign of victory. I was, I was looking this up the other day, and in Roman culture, a Roman lawyer, all right, yes, I'm talking about lawyers, a Roman lawyer who won a case in court would adorn his door with palm branches to show people that he was somebody who was victorious. The Olympics, they would be given a palm frond if they won. That was the gold medal. When an army returned victorious from the battlefield, the people would wave palm branches in front of the army as they marched back. And here, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9, which speaks of the king of Israel riding in on the foal of a donkey. What are the people expecting? There you go. They're expecting a victory over Rome. Now, I've got to tell you, we paint this picture of Roman occupation, the Roman occupation of Israel. We paint this picture that it was an oppressive regime, and it was, Rome really let the Jews do whatever they wanted. The oppressive part was taxes. How many of y'all pay taxes? Okay. All right. That's the oppressive part, right? (laughs) That's the part we don't like. Is that part where the government takes part of our money. Now, I'm personally a big fan of taxes because most of my income comes from them. So y'all keep up the good work. (laughs) The Romans were not that oppressive. The Romans didn't tell the Jews that they couldn't practice their religion. In fact, they pretty much took their hands off and said, you can do whatever your religion requires. Just pay us the taxes. And by the way, we'll tax you extra. Right? The Romans didn't persecute the Jews much. Now, they would put a Roman governor in authority, which irked the Jews because that's God's property, not Rome's. And we shouldn't have a Gentile ruling over us. Um. But for the most part, it really wasn't. So why would they be wanting victory over Rome? Because it was God's city. Any oppression was too much. Any being under the authority of Rome was too much. And so Jesus shows up riding on this donkey and the people think think, here is freedom from Rome. Here is the deliverance that we have been waiting for. Now, in uh, the mid-700s B.C., the northern ten kingdoms had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and then in the mid-500s B.C., the southern kingdoms went into captivity, and it wasn't until the Persians came into power that they let the, the Jews go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem. And it wasn't long after that that the Persians were taken into captivity, 
right? By this little Greek punk by the name of Alexander. You may have heard of him before, right? Conquered, conquered most of the world before he was 30 years old because it wasn't long after he was 30 years old that he died. And Alexander conquered the world and then his four top generals after he died, his four top generals kind of divided up his kingdom and then the northern two and the southern two got together and, and they played political football with Israel. Back and forth, they kept taking over the territory because it's in a really good spot. So they would take it over from the top and take it over from the bottom, take it over from the top, take it over from the bottom. And then when they finally fell apart, then you had Rome come in. And Rome finally brought some semblance of peace. But in all of this time, you've not had a king from the line of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. You've had a king at the grace of the Assyrians, a king at the grace of the Babylonians, a king at the grace of the Persians, a king at the grace of the Greeks. And the people were tired of being occupied by another country. Pick one. And here comes Jesus, riding into town on a donkey. He just brought somebody back from the dead. He teaches and he speaks with authority. The people thought that freedom had come. I can see the disciples, all right, based on what John tells us here in verse 16, the disciples did not understand these things. I can see the disciples walking along with the donkey. What in the world? Right? It's when you're driving down Highway 49 and you hear a siren, you keep looking in your mirror to see what's coming behind you, and you can't see it. Right? The disciples are looking over their shoulders. Is there like a returning army coming back? They don't get it. They had not put together Jesus as the conquering king. He was the son of God. Peter said that, right? Back there in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, good job. Your flesh hasn't shown you this, but God has. He was anointed of God. He was a Messiah. Keep in mind that word Messiah there is used a lot in Scripture. Would you believe that there was a Gentile king who was called Messiah? His name was Cyrus. He was an itinerant rabbi. He didn't even have a place he called home. He grew up in Nazareth and then he left. And he just traveled the countryside teaching. And these are the guys who spend time with him. Now he's a really good teacher. He's a prophet. They can tell that because he says stuff and then God does big stuff. But for the 12 who walk along with Jesus, it's just Jesus. He's a guy like we are. He's a man. What is this going on? They don't understand. King was far out of the definition of who Jesus was. However, what a better time for the king of Israel to appear on the scene. 
Now, what was the crowd in Jerusalem for? Not the Passover, but the feast that came after the Passover. If you pay very close attention in the Gospels when we read about this, there are two different events that are described taking place here. One of them is the Passover. We remember the Passover, right? Book of Exodus, Moses comes to Pharaoh, let my people go. No, I'm not going to, so there's a plague. Okay, I'll let your people go. Now nah, I changed my mind. There's another plague, right? Lather, rinse, repeat a dozen times, right? And finally, the final plague, Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. So God says, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to tell my people. Tonight, I want them to go home, put on their traveling clothes, Take a sheep without blemish, slaughter that sheep, take some of the blood and paint it on the doorposts and the lintel across the top, and everybody stay in the house because I'm going to send the angel of death through Egypt, and any house that does not have that blood, the angel is going to kill the firstborn. But the angel will pass over, hence the name, the house that has the sign of the blood. <clears throat> Later on, after the people leave Israel, they're given the uh, the law, and they're given a series of feasts that they are supposed to keep. Right? Like we have the Feast of the Tabernacles, or, or the Feast of Booths. We have the Feast of the Pentecost. We have the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And that's the second event that's going on here in Israel. Now, the reason I bring those three up is there are only three pilgrimages that are required of Jewish men in the Old Testament. They are for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Pentecost. Three times they are supposed to go back to Israel for the feast. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread is to commemorate Passover. So Passover happens the day before the feast starts. Right? On the day of Passover, the Jews go through their house and they eliminate all of the leaven in their house. Now, modern day Jews will actually leave deliberately a chunk of leavening someplace that the youngest child in the family can find it. They take that chunk of leavening outside and they burn it outside their house to represent that all the leaven has been removed from their home. And then for the next week, they eat a feast that includes unleavened bread. Because as they were traveling out of Egypt, they didn't have time for their bread to rise before they baked it. Because God was rather urgent with the whole get out of town now. And so the people were in Israel for the feast of the unleavened bread. They were in town preparing for Passover but that's not the reason they were in Jerusalem. It just happened to coincide. <clears throat> this would also tie into their recognition as, of Jesus as the coming king because the Passover was the celebration of their deliverance from Egypt. 
from slavery, from bondage. And here comes Jesus riding on that foal of a donkey. Deliverance has come. It would make sense. Now, it it does make sense to us because we look for those kind of omens and and signs and things that make sense. Y'all remember Y2K? Right? How many people said Jesus was coming back in the year 2000? Apparently, just God didn't read our calendar, right? We look for significance in these things. So it would make sense to the Jews that they celebrate the Passover every year because they were delivered from Egypt. And so if God's going to send his deliverer, wouldn't he show up on the Passover? That makes sense. John tells us even though the disciples missed the significance of these things, the Pharisees didn't. Did you catch that part in uh, verse 19? The Pharisees said to one another, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world's gone after him. They realized that the people have accepted that Jesus has come as their deliverer. Everyone's following him. The stories had been passed. The the people who had been in the crowd when Jesus raised Lazarus, I love the story of Lazarus. (coughs) When Jesus raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead, she had just passed away, right? And according to Jewish understanding, This is Jewish understanding. When a person died, their spirit hung around for three days. So when Jesus went to Jairus' house, and he said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping, and he said, get up, and she got up out of the bed, people could say, well, her spirit was still there. But then we get to the story of Lazarus. Jesus waited four days before he went to the tomb. What happens to a dead body in four days? Yeah. This is one of those cases where the the old King James is great. Jesus says, roll the stone away. And Lazarus' sister says, don't, he stinketh. Right? Had those days when Liam comes home from work. He stinketh. At that point, the spirit had departed the body, in their understanding. The spirit was gone. And Jesus, with tears in his eye, mourning alongside everybody else, because Lazarus was dead. All right? This isn't like the princess bride where he was only mostly dead. He was dead, dead. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walks out of the tomb. That's the kind of thing that's going to make the news. Because generally speaking, dead people stay that way. And yet Jesus has consistently done things that were not normal. The blind men who had their sight restored. The lepers who'd been cleansed. The lame who could walk. The the people who were possessed (coughs) and oppressed by demons were delivered, were freed. These stories 
grew. And somebody who's got that kind of power, somebody that God is obviously behind, right? Because the the Jewish understanding of those signs was that when a prophet speaks, God's going to substantiate that with a sign. I am God and I approve this message. And everything that Jesus has said, God has done something. God is on Jesus' side. And so everybody followed Jesus. Now, after they got into the city, this time from Luke's gospel, the disciples asked Jesus where they should prepare for the Passover meal because, you know, there's preparation that has to be done. They have to get the leaven out of the house yet. Where do we prepare for the Passover? Luke 22, he says, go find a guy at the well who's going to be carrying a jar of water Follow him to his house, and when he goes in the house, ask him for the upper room so that we may share the Passover meal. It doesn't sound <clears throat> terribly bizarre, right? Since many travelers came to Jerusalem, having an open upper room for somebody to rent out for something like this was pretty normal. The abnormal part... <clears throat> was that there would be a man carrying a jar of water. Typically, the men carried just a water skin because it was more portable and easier to get out of the way while they were doing work. The big jars of water were carried by the women from the well to the house because they didn't have plumbing. The women would use it for cleaning. They'd use it for cooking. And Jesus said, go find a man carrying a jar of water perhaps to show his omniscience to his disciples. And so they did. They followed his instructions. They went, they prepared the upper room. And in this upper room, Jesus spent his last hours before his death teaching the disciples. From uh, back in John's Gospel now, from chapter 13 of John's Gospel, which is the account of uh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, all the way <clears throat> to chapter 17, which is his high priestly prayer for the church. <coughs> I think I have too long still. Jesus spent that time teaching and preparing the disciples. Now, since we are celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to change gears and we're going to look at chapter 13, which is uh, right before the institution of the Lord's Supper in the rest of the Gospels. John doesn't tell us about the Lord's Supper. Um, In chapter 13, we see something that fits in really well with what we've been talking about in Matthew's Gospel. Um, in, in Matthew chapter 17, 18, 19, and even chapter 20, Jesus has been talking about and addressing this idea of who's going to be the big shot in the kingdom, right? The disciples were arguing about it, and so he told them, no, if you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be childlike. 
You have to be like this child right here. You have to be innocent. You have to be guileless. You have to be trusting. Not childish, but childlike. And then they continue on. And he, he's talking about forgiveness of other people's sins. And, and he's talking about the first will be last. Because after the rich young ruler, the, the disciples ask him, well, what are we going to have in the kingdom of heaven? We've given everything up. In other words, most of that chunk of Matthew has sounded like the disciples are preparing for an opera. Me, 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 me. Jesus keeps telling them, that's not it. Now, why would they do this? Why would would they have this idea? Well, because the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the religious leaders exercised positions of prominence. They were the ones in authority. They were the ones who were considered to be blessed. They were the ones who sat in the front row. They had the good seats. When Jesus' brother James writes his letter to the church, he tells them, when a rich man comes to your congregation, don't offer him the choice seat, and then a poor man shows up and you tell him, you can sit in the back. Don't do that. To put it in Jesus' words, if you're going to be the first in heaven, you must be the last here. If you want to be somebody there, then you need to be a servant here. Even he came to serve. And before the Passover meal, he gave them an example. He demonstrated that servanthood. We've talked about the foot washing event before where everybody gets into the house, everybody's in the upper room, and the meal is prepared. And before the meal, Jesus looks at the 12 sitting at the table, and he takes off his outer garment, and he ties his shirt around his waist with a towel, and he fills a basin with water, and he goes to the disciples, and he starts to wash their feet. Peter pitches a fit. Because this ain't how we do things here, right? Jesus is the rabbi. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the Lord. Even if they don't get that he is the king, he is still not the servant. If anybody should have been washing their feet, it should have been John Mark. Because he was the youngest and the lowest of the group. But yet Jesus is the one who did it. Take a look at chapter 13 of John's Gospel. Starting in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have just done? Do you get it now? This is right after all of the stuff that we've been looking at in Matthew with Jesus teaching the disciples. To be first, you must become last. To be great, you must be a servant. He finishes washing their feet and he says, do you get it? If I am your teacher, if you call me teacher and you call me Lord, which is right, which is good, and I have washed your feet, I have been your servant, 
then you also ought to be each other's servant. I have given you an example. You catch that? Jesus gave them an example. He demonstrated it for them. I have made myself into your servant. You need to serve one another. Now, <clears throat> foot washing in the Middle East was a necessary practice. All right? I know a couple of us have been over there. How many of y'all been to the beach in Biloxi or Gulfport? Okay. That sand is nothing like what they have in the Middle East. Larry, you can back me up on this. All right, that sand down there is coarse, right? The sand in the Middle East is like talcum powder. Yeah, and it gets everywhere. And if you walk in that, even while I was over there, I was over there twice, once in 1997 and once in 2002-2003. I wore combat boots. Everywhere that I went, I wore combat boots, except for when I went to the shower tent. And then I wore sandals. And when I got out of the shower, I got dressed and put on my combat boots, because if I had any moisture on my skin, when I stepped outside that shower tent, by the time I got back to the tent, my feet would look like I haven't washed in a month. Because of the dust. And we had modern plumbing. They didn't. We had four-wheelers and Humvees and the John Deere Gators and, and, and Deuce and a Halfs and pickup trucks. They had the Shoe Leather Express. I wore combat boots. They wore basically a piece of leather strapped to your foot with more pieces of leather. Foot washing in the Middle East in Jesus' day, was a necessary practice. Today, it's not. It's not a necessary... We don't have servants in our house who wash people's feet when they come over. Look, when I have guests at my house, I do not send Warren to get a pitcher of water to wash their feet. Why not? Because that's not necessary. Everybody I know in the United States has access to some kind of water. And most everybody that I know has the ability to wear closed-toed shoes and travel by something other than the Shoe Leather Express. Simple as that. So what then would be a good practice in our context that would show that servant attitude that Jesus just gave an example of? Work at a soup kitchen. Volunteer to read to kids at a school. Volunteer to go to a nursing home and sit with the elderly. Volunteer to teach a Sunday school class. Go visit the shut-ins of the church. Minister to people who are in need. See, 
Foot washing was a need. Find a need and then do it. Meet that need. And if you keep looking at what Jesus says, he explains further. He says, if the servant isn't greater than the master, now he's looking at the 12, right? If I'm the master, you guys aren't, and you're not greater than the master, and I washed your feet, I served you, then what should you do? Go serve other people. Even if that means taking care of people who persecute and betray you. Because you notice that I keep talking about Jesus washing the feet of the twelve. That twelve included Judas. And it's not, if you keep reading here in chapter 13, starting in verse 21, it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another and they didn't know who he was talking about. John said, Was it me? Who is it? And Jesus said, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread. And then Jesus again served Judas. He gave him food. We're supposed to serve people Because Jesus told us to. Not because we like them, not because they're nice to us. This is the legitimate application of the statement that Jesus made in Matthew 20, verse 16, that we looked at here a week or so ago. This is what the body of Christ should look like. Servanthood. Taking care of one another, not seeking to place ourselves first. The world will tell you, take care of number one. Right? Look out for number one. Because if you don't look out for number one, nobody else is going to. Life in Christ means I treat everybody else as number one. Trusting God means that I trust that He will take care of me. I don't have to. That trust is reflected in the Passover meal. Again, the Passover All right, so what I want you to do is to slaughter this sheep, and I'm going to cause the firstborn of everybody in Egypt to die unless there's blood over your door. You think that requires a little bit of faith? Now, I know we can look at Israel and say, well, but this is God's chosen people. Yes, this is God's chosen people who made it as far as the Red Sea before they started complaining. Great, Moses, you brought us out here to die. They cross the Red Sea, they make it one day further. Great, Moses, you brought us out here to starve to death. They get manna, they make it one day further. Great, Moses, you brought us out here to die a third. Yeah, they're great, faithful people. The Passover was an act of faith. And it was that traditional Passover that Jesus changed when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Again, I'm going to flip to Luke's gospel. If you want to flip over to Luke chapter 22. Starting in verse 14. 
Jesus said to the disciples, When the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This celebration, the reason we do the Lord's Supper, Jesus commanded this. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of what? Not just his death, but also his life, also his resurrection, his perfection, his identity, who he was. He desired to eat this meal with his disciples to share with them one last time the defining celebration that really is pretty much at the at the, the point of what it means to be Israel. To trust God. As they finish the meal, as they concluded, is when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. That's when he changed it. The, the liturgy of the, the Passover meal had remained unchanged all the way through Jesus' day. And then at the end of it, he did something that was different. Now, as we keep looking here at Luke's gospel, in verse 21, he says, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Judas was there. And yet Judas participated. Now, for Judas, it was just another Passover meal. As I get ready to distribute the elements this morning, a couple of passages that I want to remind you of. Number one, Paul tells the Corinthians that they are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion. They are taking it as a feast. They are taking it with no concern for anybody else. They're taking it without love. They're taking it without compassion. They're taking it because they're in it for themselves. Well, gee, doesn't that sound a lot like what Jesus has been teaching the disciples all this time that we've been looking at? The Christian life ain't about you. It wasn't about getting you saved so that you don't go suffer the fires of hell. The Christian life is about what we do after we're saved. And then Jesus made mention of, uh, if you have something against your brother, leave your gift on the altar and go deal with it first. 
and then come back and make your offering? Well, this time that we have is an act of offering. We offer our time to God every Sunday when we gather together. We offer this time as a gift. I'm not going to tell you you got to get up and go deal with something right now and then come back and hope to participate in Lord's Supper because I expect I'll be out of here in a half hour or so, right? So unless you drive really fast, you're probably not going to be able to do it. But I am going to recommend to you, when you do come to church, when you do come to worship, before you get out your car and walk in, Take a minute to pray and ask if there's something you need to deal with first before you come to put your gift on the altar, before you come to celebrate with us. Okay? So I'm going to invite everybody to pray just for a couple of minutes before I bless the elements and distribute them. And I'm going to ask you to pray that God shows you if there's anything you need to deal with anything that you need to take care of. And if there is, and you need to abstain from celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, that's okay. There is no judgment. It probably would have been wiser for Judas, had he known what was going on, to skip. I'm not calling any of you Judas. All right? But it's okay to abstain if there's something you need to deal with. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.